Thank you, Howard. Howard uh, has started emailing me um, some more ideas that some of you have talked to him about on what we do when we finish this. We're, we're bogged down a little bit, not in a negative way, but hopefully a positive way in 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is a very complicated letter. So as we go through the Bible, it's one that really we're pausing and taking apart a bit more than we'd take apart otherwise. Um, uh, we may do that also with Ephesians. We may do that with Romans. Some of these letters are letters that are, are, are harder to understand. Two weeks ago, we were short of sheets um, of handouts, and Philip has brought some more. If you need the one from two weeks ago, which were the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, Philip's got those somewhere, and uh, if you need a handout for Philip's over here with those. If you need a handout for today's class, if you'll raise your hand, uh, the folks will be glad to give you one. <clears throat> Today we're going to be looking at the worship issues in chapter 10 and 11. Last uh, preliminary note before we get going. Uh, next week it is uh, with God's will uh, that we will look at probably chapters 12. I hadn't figured out how I'm dicing up 13. I may throw 13 in the mix and 14. And so um, it's the speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts issues as well as the chapter on love. Uh, one thing that when we're doing bite-sized portions like we are right now that you may find beneficial is to read it before class. Uh, probably not during the sermon, <laughs> but, but uh, at another stage before class. Uh, because uh, I don't put the text up there verse by verse as we're going in the bite-sized portions. And if you've read it and it's fresher in your brain, it might make a little more sense as I walk through it. Otherwise, you just kind of get the Lanier revised version uh, by reading the sheets or, or uh, uh, by listening to me up here. We are in 1 Corinthians as we gallop through the Bible at a three-year pace, it looks like. And there are a couple of points that I want you to keep in mind. If you're new to the class, these are, 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 are fresh for you. If you're old to the class, then just keep these in mind as we look at Corinthians this morning because there are some points about Corinthians that will be important. First of all, remember Paul started the church and stayed there for 18 months, uh, probably two years or so before he wrote this letter. In the meantime, between the time Paul left and the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there had been writings back and forth between Paul and the church and also people going back and forth. So as a result, Paul knows what's going on in the church quite well. He's familiar with the people, by and large. He's familiar with the practices of the church. Paul is writing not just in a vacuum, but he's anticipating a visit following his writing. So his writing is something to try and get some things in order. And, and, and that means a couple of things. First of all, to me at least, it means that the things Paul's writing about are so important that he doesn't want to wait till he gets there. So we're reading things that are semi... I mean, if I'm going to see Lewis this afternoon at 2 and I've got some things to talk to Lewis about, then I don't need to run over and talk to him right now. I'll save him up till 2 o'clock today, Right? But, but if, if I'm not going to see him, then and he gets an email from me, well, it may just be a general catch-up. We know that Paul is planning on seeing them and planning on seeing them very soon. But Paul's writing anyway at this point in time because the things that Paul has to say are too important to wait. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, <clears throat> there are dividers. That's a new word in our English language uh, uh, in, in everyday speak now. Um, uh, for the last seven years or so. They're uniters and dividers. There were dividers in Corinth. These are people who were dividing the church up. And uh, there was a strong group of those that questioned Paul, 
questioned his authority and questioned his teaching. And so a lot of Paul's writing here in Corinth is to substantiate who he is and to take on his challengers, to take on some of those dividers and show them to be wrong in what they're teaching the church and the direction they're leading. There was also a problem in this church with some people who elevated themselves to a degree of super spirituality. They no doubt spoke in very deep voices and carried themselves with quite an air of dignity as they walked around. They probably drank with a pinky extended. You don't know. At least spiritually, they had their spiritual pinky extended because these were people who were you know, so much holier than Paul and so much more advanced, and they were super spiritual. It wasn't enough to be spiritual. They were going to be super spiritual. And they probably spoke with that type of a voice. And so, it, you know, you could recognize them on the street. Um, that's what we have to keep in mind. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the class. Um, the class starts out, uh, the, the class, the, the text we're looking at in class today starts out in chapter 10, and Paul's kind of picked up a flow from chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul had been talking about his ministry and talking about the self-discipline that he had, but Paul's writing to people who in these schisms and divisions and this holier-than-thou stuff are people that are really brought down by jealousy and brought down by pride. Um, uh, they, they've, they've, they've puffed themselves up. They think more of themselves than they should. And, and, and the way they relate to other people is by claiming themselves better out of the jealousies. And Paul says that anytime you have this, you know, he's written his letter so far and he's talked about the way it affects their personal lives, but it doesn't just affect you personally, it carries over into the church. And so while we can see Paul talk about personal issues of a husband and a wife and how they get along and lawsuits and the way people relate to each other there, and Paul deals with the schisms and the groups they divide themselves into and how they hold themselves out as being smarter than someone else or more holier than someone else. Those sins of jealousy and pride don't just affect our one-on-one. -on -one. They don't just affect the way you live and the way you relate to the people you're with, whether in your marriage or whether it's your work or whether you're sitting next to them in the, the church row. But they affect the church at large. Okay? You, you can't take those, little, those, those big sins and just put them in little parts of your life. It will affect the whole congregation. And so what, it's not surprising to see Paul, after dealing with these types of issues in individual circumstances, to now say, look at how it's affecting the whole conduct of the whole church at large, because it does. And so this is the flow as we get into 10. Now, chapter 10 is a chapter that I'm, I'm calling right now, uh, uh, for my instruction purposes in here, stop going to pagan feasts. Now, we sit here today, and, and this is one of the great opportunities, as my brother-in-law would say, or challenges, uh, opportunities, when you deal with a letter like Corinthians. You cannot read 1 Corinthians and do it justice in your life or mine, or in our church's life, if you merely read it in a 21st century context. If you want to do justice to this letter, you've got to first read it in the context in which it was written understand it in the day for the meaning it had for Paul and that church. And then we can fairly apply it to us today, hopefully. And uh, uh, that's the goal. Mike Cherry told me one of the things he'd love to see a class on sometime is how, because he thinks that, that, that as a church we need this, how do we take Scripture and apply it today? It was Mike or Marty, I'm not sure which one, or maybe both of them. And, and, and they're so right, that's such a challenge for people because the temptation is merely to read this and to apply it however we want to. 
And that's not fair to Scripture. We need to read and understand why it was written and what it was meant to say within the, the, the context that it was written. Then we try to see how it applies to our context today, right? So, for example, we need to understand that the Corinthians, like most of the Greek world or the Roman world at the time, were big on pagan feasts. They would have festivals to their pagan gods and goddesses. And the pagan festival would be a, a, a wonderful event. I imagine schools would shut down early. Kids would get extra money from their parents. They could go down to the pagan feast. And from, from childhood on, you get to go down and there's all the festivities and the frivolity. And I'm sure the drink abounds and I'm sure the food abounds. And it's a big pagan festival in honor of the deity. And the Corinthians... Now, the Jews aren't really going to be a problem, the new Jewish Christians. But those Christians that were not Jewish, the Greek Christians in that church, are all of a sudden in a new religion. So what does it mean about going to all those pagan feasts? I mean, they're fun. They're community activities. Everybody does it. You don't really have to believe in it to do it. And Paul says, stop. You don't need to be going to... No, not you don't need to be... You should not be going to the pagan feasts. And here's what he says. He starts out chapter 10 and says, I want you to consider Israel as an example. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the stories of Israel. Remember when the, when the Corinthian church, even the Greeks in the Corinthian church, when they're being taught from Scripture, they're not being taught from the New Testament because the New Testament's not been written. Heavens, Paul's writing part of it right here. Right? So the scriptures that even the Greeks at this point in time would be learning about or used, that are used in their church services are the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul is able to use an example like Israel, even though he's talking to Greeks and Jews as well. He says, consider Israel as an example. Go back and look at it. Here is Israel that's had this incredibly miraculous provision by God. All of Israel passes together, all of them with Moses under the cloud. They're all immersed or baptized into the sea as they go through the sea. And all of them together get this incredible spiritual blessing. God is giving them manna, which Bob told us the other day was roughly equivalent to... Uh, I don't remember what you said, but there was some kind of food we had up at the office that Bob thought was pretty close to manna. And uh, which meant he and I can't eat it because we're like on a manna-restricted diet. Um, maybe it was banana bread. I don't know. Anyway, the, uh, the, you know, all of the, the Jews together had gotten this miraculous provision of food. They'd all been miraculously given water from the rock. And Paul says, don't think that that's just the way God was then. That rock was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ provided for the Jews. Jesus Christ is God. There is one God, and He's Jesus Christ the Son, as well as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ is the rock. So the Jews were provided for, not just physically, but spiritually. And what happened when Moses goes up on the mountain and stays there? Their celebration... Their Yahweh God is reduced down to a golden idol, a golden calf, and they start having their big pagan feast to the golden calf. And their riotous revelry begins. 
which leads eventually not just to, to uh, 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 the, the celebration, the drunkenness, the carousing, but even the sexual immorality that came. And so Paul says, consider this, that God wasn't pleased with them. It may have been all of them that went out, all of them that got the miraculous provision, all of them that were taken care of physically and spiritually, but a bunch of them were left dead in the desert because of what they did. And God wasn't pleased at all. And so Paul wants us to know that, that, that you can have all of the provision there is. Let's get back. You can have all of the provision there is. God can provide for us spiritually and physically. We can have Jesus Christ, but if we let our pride and we let our jealousies and we let our desires of what we want and our personal boasting and all that we are take over, then our fall is just as tragic and just as readily apparent. So Paul tells these Christians, you know, in reference to the pagan feasting, don't go. That's not where you need to be. Think, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And I almost believe, we don't have the benefit of quotation marks, but I almost believe that this standing firm must have been what some of Paul's adversaries at least, maybe not adversaries, maybe some of the people going to the pagan festivals were saying, you know, I may be going to the pagan feast, but I'm standing firm in my faith. Don't worry about it. I'm just going because it's fun. It's a family tradition. You know, the rest of my family won't understand if I don't go because they're not Christians. But I'm standing firm in my faith. And Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Because the fall's right around the corner. And that's true for us too. If you get proud because of the blessings and the provision God's given you in your life, and you start thinking, or I start thinking, that we earned it, or we deserve it, we need to be very careful. Because ours may not be going to a pagan festival. Ours may just be the festival of our hearts and our lives and our prosperity. We have to be very careful. Because uh, uh, anything that we are and anything that we have is because God gave it to us. Rebecca Jane, our six-year-old. Seven, six, six, seven. How's Rebecca? We got more daughters than anybody in here. I can't keep them straight. I think she's like six or so. She's in first grade. Her middle name's Jane. I know the core things. Her birthday's September 18th. I just don't know which year. Um... She's seven? Yes, what I thought. Okay, so Rebecca Jane, our seven-year-old, says to me this morning, I'm finishing up my PowerPoint. I got something really cool I'll show you all in a minute. I'm getting it on there and trying to figure out how to make it work. And she says, Dad, watch me do the yo-yo. And so she's this tall, and the yo-yo is about that tall, and she can't do the yo-yo without it hitting the ground. So anytime she throws it down, she has to hold her hand up like this, which means it immediately jerks up. If you do yo-yos, you'd know this stuff. So I've made a little platform for her to stand on, so she can stand on the platform that's two feet high and do the yo-yo with it room to go down and come up. So I watched her do some of the yo-yo, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on my Sunday school class. She said, why do you teach Sunday school? I said, well, um, because I like to, and I have a chance to, and I said, and I think God wants me to be doing that. 
And she said, how do you know he wants you to be doing that? And I said, well, sweetie, God's given me the, the, and I'm trying to think of how to say this to a, I thought she was six. If I'd known she was seven, I could have said it so much easier. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this to a, a, a six or seven-year-old. And so I said, and, I, and all I wanted to say was God's given me the tools and he expects me to use them because if you don't use them, you lose them and he gives them to you for a reason. But you can't just say it that way to her so you try to say it to her level. But that's what this is about. And, and anything we have, we have because God gave it to us to use for his purposes. So how dare we ever get prideful over it and start thinking it's something we earned or deserved or anything like that. That's wrong. And the, the, the same pitfalls lie for us. The other side of the coin, though, Paul's very careful. There are some people who are very sensitive, who live in constant fear that something bad is going to happen. I've met people who live in spiritual fear, spiritual fear that they can't measure up and God will never be pleased with them, spiritual fear that they're just, just you know, um, one, one misstep from hell's fire and, and from just losing their faith and everything else. And Paul wants these people to know. Paul is thinking, oh, there are some of those people there. This is going to be taken out of context. I need to give the other side of the coin. You can see his thinking there. And so Paul adds and he says, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. And don't worry, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Okay. And, and so to the, the, the Corinthians, for example, that are being asked by the family, hey, we've got a big family reunion. Everybody's coming over from Athens. They're coming down from Sparta. We're going to all get together at the pagan festival of Aphrodite, and we're going to have just a great family get-together party. And you've got a Christian there who says, I can't go to that. And the pressures are so intense for him. And the family pressures there, or the, the community pressures there, or the job pressures there. And Paul's letting them know, God will provide a way out for you. Now, our temptations and pressures are probably not to attend the drunken debauchery party for Aphrodite. Our temptation pressures are maybe very different. But almost all of us wind up attending a work function or a social function where the pressure is brought to do something that's not in line with what your Christian convictions are. And there's part of you that says, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this because I'm still standing firm in my faith. And so I think it's fair for us to take this story that Paul's using with Corinthians and apply it in our lives in a way to say, well, time out. God will give us a way out of these things. You know, we don't have to, to tell the coarse jokes or we don't have to do the behavior. There, there, there are ways that we can, can stand firm with God, and that's important. And Paul says it's important not just for yourself and your own conscience, it's important for your witness. Now that doesn't mean that we turn into something holier than thou, that then all of a sudden, in the eyes of the world... Um, uh, let me give you an example. I, I, I spoke um, two weeks ago at the Seton Hall Law School in Newark, New Jersey. And my speech there was what it means to be a trial lawyer, a, a successful trial lawyer. Uh, I give the same speech coming up this Friday, uh, I'll change it a little bit, at Pepperdine um, Law School out in California. And, and Pepperdine is a Christian school, but I'm not sure that the law school's all of that um, faith-driven. 
I don't know. I mean, uh, um, it'll be interesting. On Saturday, I get to judge. A, uh, I'm one of three judges in a moot court panel, and, and it's me here, and sitting next to me judging will be Ken Starr. So I'm dying to talk to him about some stuff uh, uh, and, and somebody else. But, but as, I, as I sit there and I contemplate what I'm going to say this Friday, I'll be introduced not only as Mark Lanier, lawyer, da-da-da-da-da, but they introduce me as the president of the Christian Trial Lawyers, which I am right now. And, and in the process, so when I stand up and speak now at Seton Hall, probably at least 70% of my audience were Jewish, by, by heritage at least. And the other 30% were either without any faith or were probably Catholic in their faith. Very few born-again Southern Baptists in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> now, when I go out to Pepperdine, we'll have a whole smorgasbord of people from all around the, 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 the faith ramp. But when I get introduced that way, it's very important to me not to stand up and ever let someone think that because I am a Christian and I'm born again, I'm something high and mighty. I'm more moral than they are. I'm more spiritual than they are. God smiles on me. God frowns on them. And if there weren't enough of us in this country, God would probably smite this country and destroy it anyway. We're the reason God allows America to exist, especially after 911. Okay? That mentality of Christianity, I don't think is right. I don't think that's what Paul would do. And so it's very important to me as I meet this group, first of all, to let my behavior speak for itself. But while my behavior speaks for itself in the stories that I tell, in the language that I use, in the way I treat people with respect, in the way I'm, I, I hopefully will pay attention to everyone who wants to talk to me, I won't try and assess who Ken Starr is and give him more attention than Billy Bob Dipstick, the first-year law student who's just dying to say something. You know, let people see that we're not respecters of persons, that we see everybody the same. Try to show compassion and love and understanding for people. Let our behavior say who we are. But in the same time, I want to be real careful that people, that, 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 that my words don't convey and my attitudes don't convey that I am something special. Because we're not. Christ in me is very special. But that same Christ wants to be in everybody and be just as special in all of them. And God loves everyone. And so it's a real... And so when, God, when I say that God provides a way out, we've got to be real cautious that we don't see that as our ticket to stand up and say, well, I'm not going to that. I'm a Christian, praise God, and you're a pagan. Go to hell. <laughs> That's not the way you're going to show people the love of God. So, so there's, there's do, am I making sense here? All right, let's move on then. Paul takes that pagan festival now and starts contrasting it with communion, which is the festival of food that we share together as a church. It's very different than the pagan festivals. The Lord's Supper, the communion, is very different. And Paul says, and, and understand he'll deal with the Lord's Supper a little bit here at the end of 10, then he takes a time out and he talks about uh, men and women praying and prophesying, and then he comes back together to talk about the Lord's Supper. But he says the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing or thanksgiving that we have, we're participating in the blood of Christ. It's a participation. This is contrast because he's saying in the pagan festivals, you're participating with the pagans or the demons. 
In the Lord's Supper, we're participating with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wine or the, the grape juice or the, 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 the fruit of the vine that we partake, we're partaking in the blood of Christ. The bread is partaking in the body of Christ. And so our festivity is one where we participate with our God. But we do it and we become one. One with each other and one with Jesus. One with God. When we participate, he says, we who are many become one loaf, one body, the body of Christ. And we've got to see that as a horizontal, as us together, but also vertically. We become one with God there. And so Paul is saying, just like you could take lots of heads of grain and grind them all together and knead them with some water and knead them with some uh, whatever else you may want to add and you make your bread, when you take the bread, you can't find any one head of grain in that piece of bread, can you? Whether it's leavened or unleavened. You can't. It all mixes together and becomes one loaf of bread. And that's the way we are. When we come together and we take communion, we're proclaiming two things. We're proclaiming something horizontally. We're proclaiming that together we're one. There's no difference between us. There's no difference. There's no difference between gender there's no difference between uh, uh, color of our skin, our color of our clothes, our color of our teeth. There's no difference between us. We're one together in Jesus Christ. And we are one with Jesus Christ there. Because as Christ says, you know, when Christ broke, he says, I won't break this again until I break it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Christ is there partaking with us. Christ is part of our communion service. So it's a communing together. It's a communing with Him. And Paul says, that's what's happening in the Christian. Now, if that's what's going on in these, do you want to go do this with a pagan God? No. You do this with our Lord Jesus Christ when we gather together. And that's uh, the application that he gives there. Now, Paul ends this. Uh, I'm going to skip that. Yeah, we're going to skip that. Paul ends this and says, so this is why you don't go to the pagan festivals. You got your own and you do your own. And then there's this interlude where Paul starts talking about men and women. And Paul talks about men and women in worship. And it's a very difficult passage because this is the passage where Paul says that uh, uh, Christ is the head of man and, and, and man is the head of woman. And women are not supposed to pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered. Now, um, Castell's mom's not here today, is she? Castell's mom always wears a hat. She has the best hat collection of anybody I know. She wears hats because they look really good on her. And she's got some in incredible hats. But you can go to some churches where if you're a woman and you're not wearing a hat, you're, you're a harlot. You get kicked out. There have been churches where women have to have long hair and men have to have short hair. And it's based on this, a misunderstanding of this passage of Scripture. So let's look at this for a minute. Paul says the following in this passage of Scripture. He says there's Christ, and Christ is the head of man. Very simple. Greek word for head, kephale. Okay? Christ is the head of man. Now, kephale not only means head in the sense like what we've got on top of our neck, but it also means head in the sense of source. 
Can you think of how we use the word head like that now, today? Um, the, the head of a river uh, is the source. We also use the word head to mean authority. Like, uh, uh, you know, who's your head pastor? Who's your head uh, uh, whatever? Okay? The Greek word's not used that way much. So the, Paul's not talking head here in the sense of authority as much as he is source. Okay? So Christ is the head of man. Man came from God. Who, who made God? Who made man? God. But when God made Eve, where did he get the rib from? Man. So Paul's able to say that man is the head or the source of woman. God made man in his image. Man was in the glory of God. Woman has this intermediary. She's got man in the middle because her source, man is her source to some degree, her head. And, and then culturally, it was also true then uh, uh, that, that man was an authoritative head, but I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about in this passage. Okay? There are other scriptures that bear on that, but not this passage. And well, let's be fair to this passage first. So Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. And Paul says that when women pray and prophesy, the word prophesy means to preach or proclaim. It doesn't mean like Madame Cleo telling the future. It, it could involve that, but it's basically speaking on behalf of God, speaking the word of God. So when women pray or prophesy, they're supposed to do it with their heads covered with long hair or a veil or something like that because culturally at that time that was the way women of dignity would dress. And Paul says that the women who are doing this should show themselves culturally to be women of dignity who have an authority, uh, not authority, who have a, a, a relationship of source from men. They, they, they don't lord it over men. Men were their source. Uh, uh, so... so this is Paul's concept. Women should pray and prophesy with their head covered. And that's why some women wear hats in church, in some of these churches. That's why some women have to have long hair. And Paul says, if you did otherwise, and you showed yourself culturally to be uh, 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 flippant about who you are, you bring dishonor to what God is and what you're praying and prophesying to. Now, man, on the other hand, men should pray and prophesy with their head uncovered, because it shows that they were created, that their source was Jesus. And it shows that their source, their creator, they're giving homage to. So men shouldn't have uh, long hair. You know, men should not wear hats when they pray. Now this is culturally within that place. You've got to remember a good Jew back then would wear a guy, a, 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 yeah, a yarmulke. So... Um, now, Paul takes this another step, in my opinion. Um, but before we get there, let me tell you this. The issue is the culture and the impression, not what you're wearing physically. What Paul's not concerned about there is whether or not physically women wear hats in church or have long hair. In the 21st century, at Champion Forest Baptist Church in, in Houston, Texas. That's really not his concern. And to take that passage and to apply it that way is not to do justice to the passage. Paul's concern is in Corinth, in that culture, with what those symbols meant, the, the men and women of God needed to show respect for God and for each other. 
And that's no less different today. That's one reason why most of us today don't come to church in cutoffs. Okay? Because we want to show respect. When I was growing up, you showed respect for God and for others by wearing a suit and tie. Sunday dress, we called it. And today, culturally, Sunday dress doesn't mean that. But Sunday dress generally means don't come here in a halter top with short cutoffs. Because you show honor and respect. And, and that, I think, is a fair statement of what this passage is about. I cannot leave it, though, without telling you what I think it also says. And I've just got to, this is being taped, so I've got to say this. Um, I have, this is my opinion, okay? I hadn't found this in any commentaries or anything like that. And so if you want to laugh me out, you can do so. This is one of the few times you can even do it in here, okay? I just think this is true, and I don't know why people don't write on it, and if I ever write a commentary one day, I'm putting it in there. Let's go back. This, Christ is the head of man. He's the source of man. Man is the head or the source of woman. This is what Paul says. I just put it into a chart. But Paul says it clearly, and it's in this passage that Paul says, women then should pray with their head covered. Because women don't relate to God through their husbands. Now, culturally, symbolically, I still think all that stuff is true. The women covered their heads. But it's a wonderful way for Paul to say, women, don't you realize, just as it'd be improper for you to walk around looking like Sinead O'Connor with your head shaved, you know, you don't look right that way. By the same token, your head, Christ Jesus, I mean, man, your head, man, is covered when you relate to God. But men, your head, when you relate to God, is never covered. Because all of us, men and women alike, relate to God through Jesus Christ. None of us relate to... Women, don't think you relate to God through your husbands. You don't. And that, I think, is a fair rendition of the passage. Either way, the passage says to approach God respectfully through Jesus Christ. And that's fair understanding. Now, we get back to the Lord's Supper. And there's a little bit of the Lord's Supper here that we really is useful to understand. I grew up in a Church of Christ tradition. And one of the blessings of the Church of Christ that I absolutely uh, treasured and treasure today, one reason I, I love the communion room that we have here, is the Church of Christ takes communion on a weekly basis. Now, the Catholic tradition, you can get to Mass on a, 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 or communion daily. I mean, it's, it's, it's even... Uh, uh, it, it makes the Church of Christ look like laggards in this regard. But the Church of Christ, and one of the wonderful things about that is there was a lot, as I grew up, a lot of attention paid to communion and to the passages of Scripture that deal with it because there are, there's a whole wealth and breadth of the Bible that talks about it. And uh, when you do it every Sunday to keep it from becoming old hat, you, 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 you really scour the Bible to try and find the things that, that continue to provide a new facet to look at. So I want us to look at a couple of things that you wouldn't normally see here as we look at the Lord's Supper. Remember, the church is having problems with divisions there in Corinth. And the divisions when it came to the Lord's Supper are not as much party. It's not as much someone saying, I'm with, with uh, uh, you know, Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Peter. That was, that was in the teaching category earlier. Here the divisions seem to be social status. Those of high social status or high economic value, 
being in a little bit different world than those of lower social status or lower economic value. A very rigid class society existed back then that we don't have today. A very rigid class society, not only where you had rich people, but you had cultural people, you had uh, uh, citizens, you had those that weren't citizens but were free, you had slaves, very rigid categories and very different treatment for these people. But there should be no difference in treatment in Jesus Christ. And that's something the early church had a lot of struggle with, coming to grips with. So this, this two pieces of background data that I want us to have as we look at this communion passage. First of all, not only would the pagans have festivals with their meals, but it was real common for meals to be party events. And even within the Christian church, the communion process itself, at least in Corinth, seemed to have been, and we know with other churches as well, part of a larger meal. Some scholars call them agape feasts, for the Greek word for love. But there was a larger meal, and the communion would be part of that meal. In fact, that's the way it was when Christ instituted it. Anybody who's ever uh, celebrated a Passover knows that a Passover is not merely breaking a, a cracker and having a little fruit of the vine. There was a whole Passover meal. But out of that Passover meal that Christ had with his apostles, Christ soloed out uh, uh, the wafer or the unleavened bread and soloed out one of the cups as special for his communion service. So what we celebrate today with the cup and the, the bread is, is a segment of, of this larger meal for the Corinthian church oftentimes. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind. The second thing I want you to keep in mind is a little archaeology lesson. We can go back and not only do we, uh, uh, are we able to uncover the buildings m much of the time themselves. And Corinth, though a Greek city, was rebuilt by Caesar uh, under Roman type things uh, about 100 years before Paul's writing. So, so not only do we have an ability to go back and dig up and look at the, what's left of the buildings archaeologically, but we have books. There's a famous book um, uh, by a, a fellow on, on architecture. He's like the, the world's father of architecture. It's a 10-volume book on Roman architecture that was written uh, uh, much the same time as what Paul's writing, actually a little before. And he talked about how to build the buildings. And this is important when we realize churches didn't have buildings like this. They met in homes. Typically, they would probably have met in the larger homes of the wealthier people instead of the small little homes of, of those that didn't have the money and because the larger homes would be able to hold more people. Well, when they would meet together for these fellowship meals, typically dining in these homes was done in the triclinia. That's a Latin word, so it's used with our Roman letters. Triclinia we may know what is. What is tri? Three. Clinia. It's not a clinic. Think of it more like a barca lounger. We get the word recline from it. Triclinia means three couches. And that's what they called their dining rooms. Their dining rooms were triclinia. Triclinias, their dining rooms. The, the dining room would have three couches because when you ate, if you were a man, some places they'd let the women do this, but kids couldn't do it until they were 18 generally. The way you would eat is by laying on your belly. You would lay on your belly 
and there'd be the table in front of you and you would lay on this couch with your feet back behind you and your face in front of you and you'd sit there and feed yourself on your belly. And that's the way you would typically eat in a dining room. So, never wanting to let you leave here without full knowledge. <laughs> Ten people or so could sit in a triclinia. The rooms were a very specific size because the couches were a specific size. And we can read from Architecture Digest in the early first century issues that when you are designing a room like this, the length is supposed to be twice the width. Al, take notes. Marinelle, this is the way you need to start building your, living, or your dining rooms. The height was supposed to be length plus width divided by two. That's from Marcus Vitruvius Polio de Architectura, the first book on architecture that we have. That's the 10-volume thing I was telling you about. So here's what it meant. If this is the dining room, the triclinia, you would have a couch here, a couch here, number two, and a couch here, number three. The guy who's the, the uh, now, uh, when, when you came to these dinner parties, things were set up very class conscious. The host would always sit right up here, right at the corner between one and two. That's where the host would lay. I said sit, sorry, I was speaking like me. That's where, the, you know, he's going to do the, the laying thing there. Okay? His guest of honor, the number two head honcho to be honored sits on the number two corner right there. The servants would come in and out this way to bring the food. And this is the way people would eat. This is the standard layout from a dining room. I happen to have gotten a quick picture of one. See, that's the U-shape. Okay, this is the size of the dining room. It'll hold about 10 people comfortably on the barca loungers, on the recliners. Um, the servants come in and out this way. They set their food on a common serving table. You've got a little bench here where you can eat. And you see that guy? He's just laying out there just fat and happy, stuffing his face with them uh, grape leaves stuffed with uh, lamb, and it looks like in rice. And these guys, these guys, I'm up near the front. This is a dining room. Now, why on earth is this relevant to us? Let me tell you why. Remember, the Corinthian church is not just having communion, they're doing it as part of a larger meal. And only ten people are going to fit into that triclinia, and the church was bigger than ten people. So where do you think everybody else was? They're out in the courtyard. The church is divided in location, and where do you think... Everybody's bringing their food, or there may be some food there provided... But the bottom line is, is it's pretty good reason to think that the people on the inside were the status elite and the rich people. They've not only eaten, Paul says some of them are drunk by the time the people on the outside are even getting to their communion. And Christ is totally divided. Status has invaded the Lord's Supper and the way they're treating. And the whole point of Jesus Christ is that we are one in Him. And the whole point behind communion, Paul says, and, and, and this is often misunderstood. There's a passage here where Paul says to examine the body during communion. And I've heard some people say that that means during communion you're supposed to sit there and contemplate all of your sins and examine yourself, make sure you hadn't done anything wrong, and if you have, you've confessed it. It's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about examining the body, the church, the body of Christ. 
Paul's talking about how important it is. That's why Christ said, if, if your brother's got something against you, you go fix it. When we get together around the body of Christ, there's not difference in our social status. There's not difference in our money. There's not difference in who gets the position of honor at a couch and who has to stand outside in a courtyard. There's to be no difference among us because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And any difference in us is either illusory or it's something from Satan because the, otherwise we're just all people with different gifts from God to be used. And God didn't give us those gifts so that some of us could act more special than others. So Paul says you're missing the whole point here. So discern the body. See the body of Christ because Christ crucified... We're almost done here, but Christ crucified for Paul is what communion was about. And Christ crucified is not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago in history. It is that. And Christ was crucified then, but Christ today, Christ crucified means something to all of us at large. And it's the way we relate to each other. Um, when Paul says... I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, that David was using this morning. There are two different ways in the Greek verb tense you can use the past. You can do a, an aorist, which means this is something that happened in the past and it's over. Or you can have just what they call the imperfect tense. It's a past tense where there's a historical event that happened, but I'm emphasizing the present consequences of that event. It's something that happened in history, but I want the emphasis to be on how it has changed us today, what the result of that is today, what is the effect today. And for Paul, the crucifixion, yes, it was a historical event. Yes, it made us righteous before God. Yes, it saved us from our sins, but it has a consequence for us today in the way we relate to each other as well as the way we relate to God. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul's talking about here. Points for home. Number one, God gives you the strength to do what's right. Our job is not to come up with the strength on our own. Our job is to figure out what's right and do it and know that God gives us the strength to do it. And when we fall, we confess that we fall and we get right back up and we proceed. Okay? Number two, honor God in all that you do. I didn't cover this point, so I'm not going to make a big point out of it because we get this big in Ephesians anyway. But honor God in all that you do. Number three, church is not about us. Church is not about me. My answer to Rebecca should never be, I teach Sunday school class because I get a big ego thrill out of standing up in front of a couple hundred people. Church is not about me. Church is not about you to yourself. But I want to tell you from my perspective, church is about God first and church is about y'all second. For me, church is about you. For me, class is about can I offer something to you today? Through my preparation and work and standing up here, is there something I have to offer you that works? And if so, then God's behind it and praise the Lord. And if not, then I don't need to be up here. Someone else needs to be. 
church should not be about me. For you, it's the same thing. You should be out there saying church is not about me. It's about God first and our brothers and sisters second. And loving each other. Maybe the most important part of class is when we stand up and greet each other in some ways. Because it's a chance to show people that you love them and you care about them. Maybe the most important part of class is when I'm done. <laughs> so you can, on your way out, tell someone you care about them. And that's my challenge to you right now. Bob's always telling me on the points for home, I need to give somebody an action step they can do immediately. Here's your action step immediately. We're going to say a prayer, and on your way out, just in some way, big or little, let the person that you bump into or that bumps into you know that they're special or important. Maybe you smile at them. Maybe you touch them on the arm. But just let them know that they're important to you and you're glad that they were here. Pray with me. God, thank you so much that you reached down to us. It is such a ball, Father, to get to read Scripture and to see how through the ages you have moved and to understand the, the way you worked 2,000 years ago and yet see you worked the same in a whole different culture with a whole different set of facts today that you pay attention to each one of us and to call each one of us to kneel at the cross, to anoint us with the kiss of your Son, and to walk with us through our day and through our week to show your love and respect and joy and desire for all. And that is our prayer, Lord, that we will be Jew to Jew, Greek to Greek, that people will see in us your love for them. Bring us back together, Lord, please. In Jesus we pray, amen.